Robert and David are roommates at a large state university. And they meet each other on freshman move-in day. And they begin to chat as they cart their belongings into their dorm room and begin to unpack. And these young men are both bright, they're accomplished, they're both good at athletics, and yet as they start to talk, they realize they really don't have much in common with each other. You see, Robert grew up in a big city and David grew up on a farm. Robert is politically liberal and David is politically conservative. Robert comes from wealth. David comes from a middle-class family. It's not surprising then that these two young men view life from very different perspectives. Well, they're passionate about their perspectives. They're passionate about their beliefs. They're both articulate and they're outspoken and they love to defend their viewpoints. So in the first few days of school, they find themselves regularly getting into all kinds of discussions that turn into debates that sometimes turn into fiery arguments. And they wind up offending each other a lot. Not a great way to start off with your roommate, is it? Well, imagine then their surprise when they bump into each other at the first fall meeting of the Campus Christian Fellowship. (laughs) These two young men find out that they're brothers in Christ. And they've been doing this for days. Now you might think, oh, we're Christians, that makes everything beautiful. No, it actually doesn't, because these two guys don't like each other. (laughs) And they don't actually want to like each other because they're so very, very different. And so they're trying to figure out what to do to navigate the fact that we have Jesus in common, but we don't like each other. So they go to the leader of their campus Christian fellowship, and she's a very wise and godly woman, and she reminds them of two foundational principles. She said, the fact that you're so different is not as important as the fact that you are connected to God and you're connected to each other as part of this thing called the church, this unique community of faith that God has forged out of all of his children. And then second, she said to them, our life together as a community of faith is based on forgiveness. Without forgiveness, the church of Jesus Christ could not and would not exist. We are a unique community because we are birthed out of forgiveness. Forgiveness is what enables us to stick to God and to stick to each other. And that's what Robert and David needed to learn. How do we bring forgiveness into our relationship so that we can live together in peace as brothers in Christ even though we're very, very different. That's what they need to learn and that's what we begin to learn in the book of 1 John chapter 1. We're going to explore this chapter together and then at the end of the message we're going to return to Robert and David's conflict and see how it played out once they decided to embrace and stick to forgiveness. Now before we begin, since we're starting a study of a brand new book, I want to briefly talk about the author of 1 John. Our understanding of different Bible books always is going to be enhanced when we understand something of the person that God used to bring that book into existence. 
This particular book was written by the Apostle John, who was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. One of the distinctives about John is that compared to the other disciples, he had very little formal schooling. And we know this from the way he writes. As I've mentioned before, the New Testament is written in Greek, and all educated people in the first century were taught to read and write Greek. And yet when we look at the original biblical text, John's Greek is really basic. I mean, it's like first grade level Greek. Remember reading in a first grade primer like, see Bob, see Bob run, see Bob walk, see Bob walk and run, (laughs) right? We learned doing basic things like that. Well, that's kind of how John's Greek is. And in fact, in most Bible colleges and seminaries, when you study Greek, the first book you begin to try and translate is the Gospel of John, because it's so elementary. But here's what's profound. This unschooled man authored four books of the New Testament. And though John's writing uses very simple words, he usually expresses incredibly profound ideas. And oh, by the way, he was Jesus' closest friend. John's life reminds us that lack of education does not have to translate into lack of spiritual maturity. Lack of education does not have to translate into lack of spiritual impact. Following Jesus faithfully ultimately is a matter of the heart and a matter of the will. That's what counts. Having said that, because of John's lack of schooling, he was not trained in classical writing. And as a result, he didn't always write in a linear fashion. You know, point A leads to point B leads to point C. Instead, he often writes in a very roundabout and circuitous way with lots of rabbit trails and lots of repetition. And in fact, sometimes his key points buried in the middle of a passage rather than at the end. And we we see this trait very clearly when we read his biography of Jesus, the Gospel of John. The other three Gospel writers all tell their story about Jesus' life primarily in a chronological order. That makes sense in a biography, right? Well, not for John. (laughs) John just puts stuff down in the order that it occurs to him. (laughs) And we're going to see this kind of roundabout way of writing throughout this little book of 1 John. It's important to keep that in mind, and that's why I bring that up. Well, now, with that as a background, we want to take a look this morning at what John has to say about the importance of forgiveness. And he starts by reminding us of the way that we as believers are connected to each other and to God. Let's take a look. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. 
Now, to properly catch the impact of what John's saying here, we need to grasp the fact that most of the, plural, the pronouns he uses are plural. I don't know if you caught that. But for example, in verse 3, he writes, we, plural, proclaim to you, plural, what we've seen and heard. I think we get the fact that we is plural. But you know, in our American culture, when we hear the word you, we often think it means me. <laughs> we think the biblical author is talking to us as a collection of individuals. But that you is also plural. John is saying we, the apostles, are writing not to you and you and you and you. We're writing to you, the church. So we need to read this letter then, not just from a personal perspective but also from a community perspective. And here at the beginning of this letter, John tells us something unique about the church. He tells us it's a triangular community. And I use that term to give us a picture of the unique nature of our relationships within the church. John says that the apostles shared the good news with other people so that those people could have fellowship with each other and also with God. This means then, every relationship I have within the church is based on three personal connections. Me, you, and God. Here's a way to simply represent that, okay? There's a triangle. When I am dealing with you, God's always present. God's always in the relationship. And God wants us to hold this triangular relationship in balance for us to be healthy individuals and a healthy community. And here's what happens if, if a church focuses primarily or exclusively on fellowship with each other, and we're not fellowshipping with God, then we lose the source of our spiritual vitality. You know, some churches wind up taking that path where it's all about our fellowship. We kind of put God on the sidelines. You know what happens then? You just become a social organization. You just come to church to hang out with people. But on the other hand, if we just focus on our fellowship with God and not with each other, then we become ingrown as individuals. And some people choose that path and they turn into spiritual hermits and they never unite with a church community. And so fellowship with God and with each other is a vital part of what it means to be a Christian. And we need the fellowship of this triangular community to stay spiritually healthy because we simply cannot navigate the life of faith alone. God has designed us for community with each other and with him. And the nature of our community is built around fellowship, which is a fascinating word. Fellowship is not just socializing. Fellowship refers to sharing between people based on something they have in common. So for example, if two Oregon Duck fans share about their passion for the ducks, that's great, that's fun. That's a form of fellowship. But if all those two people have in common is rooting for the ducks, then their fellowship is going to be pretty shallow. What's our fellowship based on? Jesus. And we're connected to Jesus because of forgiveness. Forgiveness is what enables us to have fellowship with each other. 
Everyone who's become a follower of Jesus Christ knows what it's like to recognize, hey, I'm a sinner separated from God. I need to repent of my sins. I need to acknowledge that Jesus' death on the cross allows me to be forgiven. And then I respond to Jesus in faith through baptism. When we go through that process and receive forgiveness, now we can have fellowship with one another. What could be more profound than to have forgiveness as the basis for a community? And so, our fellowship with God and with each other, the, the formation of this unique triangular community is based on a foundation of Christ's forgiveness. We have to understand that. And what John wants us to know is then the pathway to forgiveness is confession. Let's look at the next part of the passage. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. By the way, you're starting to notice John's circuitous way of writing and <laughs> repetition. It just it keeps coming up. He keeps circling back to these points that he thinks are so important. But he uses the terms light and dark here to give us a vivid picture of what it means to be properly connected to God and to the people of God. Light represents God, light represents truth, light represents knowledge. Darkness stands for ignorance and stands for lies. Darkness obscures, while light reveals and clarifies. And you and I experience light when we have fellowship with God. And we experience darkness when our fellowship with God is broken by sin. Sin damages the nature of our unique triangular community. And sin's a word that we often toss around, but it needs to be defined, so what is it? Sin is when I engage in behavior that's harmful to me and or harmful to you, and it falls short of what God expects. And sin must be addressed because it damages our fellowship damages that are the triangular community that we're a part of. But you know what's, what's really interesting? Particularly back in the first century, it happens some today as well, but some people believe, oh, once I've repented and once I've been baptized into Christ, hey, it's all really good and it doesn't really matter how, much, how, how I live because God will just forgive everything. People can take God's grace and forgiveness for granted. They treat it cavalierly. And so they don't pay much attention to their behavior. They don't worry too much about sin. They don't try and fight against it. They don't defend against it. They don't try and avoid it. It's just, hey, if I sin, forgive me, God. I sin, forgive me, God. John is saying something very different here. He's saying that how we live really does matter a lot. And if the light of Jesus is in us, 
then our lives, yours and mine, should reflect his light. The light of truth. And so if we want to walk in the light and reflect God's light, then we need to be honest about our spiritual condition. We need to be honest about temptation and weakness and failure. And we need to be honest about the fact that sin is harmful. Sin hurts me. Sin hurts you. Sin hurts our fellowship and our fellowship with God. And we need to be honest enough then to to be able to go to God and to confess our sins. And everyone needs to confess because sin is a universal problem. John says here, to claim that we're without sin, (laughs) it's a lie. Nobody's exempt. And in fact, if we claim that we're without sin, it's really a double-edged lie. Because we're lying to ourselves about ourselves, number one, but we're also lying about God's truth. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned. Everyone's a sinner. And so here's the human condition. Before we met Jesus, we were unrepentant and unforgiven sinners. And now as followers of Jesus, we are forgiven sinners who still struggle with sin and continue to need forgiveness. (laughs) But you know, sometimes in the church, we really hate to admit the second part of that. We love to talk about the fact that we became a follower of Christ, he forgave me, but Ooh, do I need to ask him forgiveness for what I said yesterday? (laughs) Did I screw up and hurt somebody's feelings this morning? Sometimes when we talk about sin, people feel like, oh, these Bible writers just trying to beat us up with sin, and, and, and they're not. John's purpose here is not to drag us down, but to help us walk in the light. He wants us to acknowledge and recognize the reality of our condition so we can embrace and live out God's remedy for our condition. And the remedy always is confession that leads to forgiveness. And because John is writing to us as a community, his repeated comments on sin remind us that none of us, none of us are immune. Far too often in the church, We come together and we like to posture and preen and pretend like we're spiritual giants. And we act like the church is a health club for saints. (laughs) It's not. It's a hospital for sinners. (laughs) Because that's who we are. We're sinful people striving to get healthy and by God's grace we will. But we cannot buy into Satan's lies which convince us, oh, true Christians don't sin. So we got to hide our sins from each other. And Satan lies to us to convince us that freedom and power come from acting invincible. And it's just not true. That's the way of darkness, not the way of light. And the way of light is honesty and confession. And guess what? You and I experience true freedom and encouragement and power when we bring our sins out of the darkness and expose them to God's light. 
And because of this unique community in which we live, this triangular community where we have fellowship one with another and with God, then we're, we need to confess our sins to God and at appropriate times and in appropriate ways we confess them to each other. See, we think of Christian fellowship as, oh, we're going to get together, we're going to have fun, and we're going to study the Bible, and we're going to pray and talk about the Lord, and it'll all be uplifting. Yeah, it can be, and that's good, but you know what? A key part of Christian fellowship is confession. Because of our fair, shared faith in Jesus, because of the shared universal problem of sin, there's times when our fellowship has to be, Larry, I know it hurts your feelings. Would you forgive me? That's fellowship. When we apologize, we establish forgiveness between us. There is tremendous power in that. And it's one of the ways we help each other grow more and more spiritually healthy. We help each other overcome our sinful tendencies so that over time we sin less and less and less. And confession is vulnerable and it feels risky, but we need to take it seriously and live it out as a church. And I think it's important for you to know that our elders value this and they take it seriously. I, I, I got exposed to this my very first Sunday at the church. Julie and I were talking with one of the elders and he made a sarcastic comment about a church member and walked away and he came back about three minutes later and he said, I need to apologize for what I just said because that was an inappropriate, out-of-bounds comment. And so I'm really sorry. Would you forgive me for doing that? That's powerful. That was a moment of Christian fellowship. That was a shepherd of the flock striving to be an example by modeling the power of confession that leads to forgiveness in our community of faith. And that interaction wasn't an aberration because I've seen it take place during the monthly elder meetings. As we spend time in the scriptures together, sometimes we're convicted of our shortcomings and then we confess our sins to one another. Because there's no shame in that. There is freedom in that. There is power when God's light of truth comes in and exposes the darkness. It sets us free the bondage of sin. And that's why God wants this unique triangular community we are part of to also be a confessing community. To be willing as needed to confess our sins to God and where and when appropriate to confess them to, to each other. And then there's a key point. What do we do when someone confesses a sin? You know, if I've wronged Larry and I ask for forgiveness, what should Larry do? You know, beat me up while I'm down, <laughs> right? <laughs> Well, Bruce, you know, I don't really want to forgive you. You're kind of a dirt ball. I mean, <laughs> that's not how we treat, right? When somebody confesses and asks for forgiveness. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.1 says, you know, if anybody's caught in a fault, you restore them gently. You restore them gently. See, see the goal of confession, the goal of repentance, is always Restoration. So when someone confesses, we pray with them, we encourage them, we walk with them. Because the goal isn't judgment. The goal is forgiveness. The goal is restoration. I, I like to use the image of, uh, of, of learning how to ride a bike. 
never forget when I, my dad, you know, first put me on the two-wheeler and took the training wheels off. I'm riding along, bam, <laughs> bam, I kept falling down. What did, my dad, what did my dad do when I fell down? Did he say, you know, son, you're a clumsy oaf, <laughs> give it up? No, he picked me up, <laughs> wiped away my tears, <laughs> put a bandage on my bloody knee, <laughs> dusted me off, put me on the bike and said, let's try it again, boy. <laughs> and that's what he kept doing. Restoration, renewal, the, that's the goal. You keep trying. And so when someone confesses in our triangular community, the goal never is judgment. The goal is restoration. And we find that through forgiveness. And forgiveness is what really lies at the heart of this passage. John tells us that twice in verses 7 and 9. By the way, I mentioned at the beginning that John often said, he buries his main point in the middle. Well, he does that here. But he wants us to get it, so he says it twice in two different ways. He wants us to know that we are forgiven, which means we then can forgive others. So here we have that in verse 7 and 9. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. There's the forgiveness that comes from God. Again, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The forgiveness that Jesus gives us is complete and it's total. And he purchased it when he died on the cross. And without the forgiveness of Jesus, and without us embracing that, then there's no fellowship with God. If we don't embrace God's forgiveness, there's no spiritual fellowship with each other. There's no community called the church. This unique community is birthed out of forgiveness and rests on a foundation of forgiveness. And it's what truly makes the church of Jesus Christ a unique community. Think for a moment about other communities that we may be part of or experience. You know, if you, if you work for a company, there's a community there, right? You make friends at work and you may do social things together. And, and in a workplace, it's nice if people like each other, but it's not really necessary. And people can even hold grudges against each other and still get the work done. All you have to do in the company is just get the work done. Forgiveness isn't essential. Forgiveness is essential to this community called the church. We are birthed out of forgiveness. We're rooted in forgiveness and we must strive to maintain forgiveness. And a lack of forgiveness breaks down our triangular community in a way that is different from any other association or group because unforgiveness damages our fellowship with God and our fellowship with each other. But then the forgiveness that we experience through Jesus and extend to each other keeps the church strong and healthy. Ongoing forgiveness allows us to flourish individually and as a community of faith. And as we do that, then we experience the very best that God has for us. Forgiveness. Without it, we'd be helpless we'd be wasting our time here. That's what John wants us to know. And now, with that as a foundation, I'd like us to go back 
to Robert and David, the college roommates I mentioned at the beginning who have little in common with each other except their faith in Jesus. And as I mentioned, they've offended each other, they've hurt each other's feelings, they don't really like each other. Excuse me, and at the urging of the leader of their campus Christian fellowship, they agree to sit down and read the Bible together to read some Bible passages about forgiveness. Included in that list of passages was the one we just explored. And they discuss these passages together. And they pray about them together. And as they do, the Holy Spirit prompts them to apologize for some of the hurtful and angry words they've spoken. And they each confess to being prideful because in their debates, they each wanted to win the argument. <laughs> and winning the argument was more important than being united in Christ and living in peace. So as they read the scriptures, as they pray, they're able to look each other in the eye and say, I forgive you. And they also acknowledge, you know what, we are part of God's family and we don't necessarily have a lot in common, but we're brothers in Christ. We're part of this unique triangular community that's birthed out of forgiveness and, and we need to choose to live together as forgiving people. But once you've forgiven someone, what comes next? How do these two very different Christians actually do life together? Well, they realize that because they're so different, they're going to continue to disagree about politics and economics and many other things. In fact, they recognize that there are many areas of life where they will probably have to agree to disagree in order to live in peace. And they realize, you know what? In non-essential things, it's okay if we're not in agreement. We need to agree on the essentials of what it means to follow Jesus. And they acknowledge that because of their differences, they're probably going to annoy each other at times, continue to tick each other off, and so they pledge to live together in an ongoing relationship of forgiveness. And to make sure that Jesus is at the center of their life together as roommates, they decide to begin every day by praying together. They take just a few minutes, and they thank Jesus for being their Lord and Savior. They thank Jesus for uniting them and each of them finds ways to say to the Lord, thank you for my brother in Christ. I, I found in my own life, it's a lot harder to be angry with someone when you've spent time saying to God that you're thankful for them. <laughs> Praying thankfully for another person is a great antidote for anger and bitterness and resentment. And it lubricates the pathway to forgiveness. Well, so the next few months of school, well, they're admittedly a bit rocky as Robert and David try to figure out their relationship, but as they keep their focus on Jesus, they find that their disagreements and their hostility over these secondary issues begins to fade. And they look for ways to encourage each other in the life of faith. They look for ways to support each other, help each other stay strong as followers of Jesus. By the second semester, they're surprised to find, you know what, we've actually, we've actually become friends. <laughs> There's actually some things that we like about each other. <laughs> and now they're able to do all sorts of things together without friction or conflict. 
And then in their sophomore year, through their involvement in the campus Christian fellowship, they wind up co-leading the campus discipleship ministry. They're working side by side serving Jesus together because their relationship has been forged through forgiveness. And they reach a point where they're just experiencing rich fellowship with each other and with God. It's a beautiful, triangular relationship. And that's what God wanted for them. That's what God wants for us. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. He died so we all could be part of this unique, triangular community where we receive forgiveness from God and then we share it freely with one another. And so, this morning, is there someone we need to forgive? Is there someone we've wronged and we need to go to them and ask for their forgiveness? If either of those things are true, John's advice here shows us the way forward. And the way forward is to bring sin and brokenness out of the darkness and expose it to God's light and let forgiveness flourish. John wants us to live as sticky Christians by letting the quality of God's forgiveness Stick to us. Sticky communities of faith are defined at the outset by forgiveness. May we never forget that and may we relish in practicing that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have of being a community of faith, a community that's birthed out of forgiveness that we experience through the love of your son, Jesus. And we thank you for the many ways in which we get to experience the life of faith together. Here at church on Sunday mornings, during the weekend growth groups, during, during social gatherings, or when we go out and serve the city outside our doors, Father, in all these ways we get to fellowship and do life together. And we recognize, Lord, that Without you, our community simply wouldn't exist. And so we're grateful that you've invited us to be part of your family through forgiveness. I pray that we would never take the church for granted, but we would treasure it, that we would invest in it, that we would invest in our life together and to always build each other up by being people who embrace your forgiveness in our own lives and then we choose to share it freely with each other. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.